0: So this chapter is about body fluids, body fluids and electrolytes, and it has a lot to do with uh, uh, the urinary system, renal function, but also we'll see how the blood volumes, in general, the the body fluids, are controlled and regulated by the renal system, blood pressure, and at the end we're going to talk about acid-base balance which is an important process that happens and involves not only one system, but many systems, respiratory systems, um, urinary system, renal function, and um, uh, the the blood uh, or the body fluids. So let's begin by reviewing these percentages that we see here and the different compartments. We call them body fluid compartments. And the body fluid compartments are very similar, male and female, though there are some mild differences, as we see here, in terms of fluids, 55% of the body mass is described to be fluids in uh, in female, and 60%. Usually we take the 40-60 as an average in general. But if we take only this part of 60% fluids and we analyze where these fluids are in the body, then we have the intracellular compartment and extracellular compartment, which contains two-thirds and one-third of all these fluids. So we say two-thirds of intracellular fluid fluid is intracellular inside the cells, and we call them ICF, and one-third of all those fluids are outside the cells, in the ECF or extracellular fluid. Now if we take just the extracellular fluid and analyze that amount, we'll see that 80%, 80% of this fluid, extracellular, is called interstitial fluid. And 20% is plasma. We know plasma is a fluid that circulates in the blood vessels. In the picture, we can see these different colors. We'll see the plasma is uh, the in the blood. The intracellular fluid is inside the cells and blue is representing the interstitial fluid which is surrounding all the cells. So these fluids are going to have these percentages and the balance is kept at all times. And one of the purpose of homeostasis is to keep the balance in percentage of these compartments containing all these fluids. In other words, imagine someone having an excessive bleeding, losing blood. So the volume of plasma will be decreased quickly the homeostatic mechanism will try to balance this and fluid will come from the interstitial fluid from the blue compartment will get into the blood vessels to try to balance this and since the cells contain fluid and they see the interstitial fluid is getting less amount because they are it is going to the blood vessels They are going to shrink a little bit. that's the reason why when we see someone in shock after excessive bleeding, dehydration, we see how the cells shrink, we see the dry skin, um, and we see the the eyes, signs of of loss of fluids in general, signs of dehydration we call it. So everything follows these logics. Homeostatic mechanisms try to balance the percentage of fluids in all these compartments at all times. And in the other way around also, that's why we have edema or swelling. The edema or swelling is excessive amount of fluid in the interstitial space or interstitial compartment. And that 80%. So this is what what we just described, intracellular fluid, two-thirds extracellular, one-third of all body fluids. Two-thirds and one-third of all body fluids, intra-extracellular fluid. Now 80% of this extracellular is called interstitial fluid, and the rest is found in the intravascular compartment. That's another name that we give to this compartment in the blood, intravascular, inside the blood vessels, which is 20%. Now, there are more compartments which are smaller, but we will see fluids also, and that accounts for lymph, cerebrospinal fluid, synovial fluid in the joints, aqueous humor in the eyes, endolymph, perilymph, and inner ear, pericardial fluid, pleural fluid, peritoneal fluid, small spaces, compartments containing fluid. But we usually don't count them in the general uh, percentages. We just consider the plasma uh, having the 20% of the extracellular fluid. So water is a main component of all these fluids. Water, but also important solutes, which we can have electrolytes, sodium, potassium, calcium, and other molecules. The processes of filtration, reabsorption, diffusion, and osmosis will happen to keep all these compartments with the correct percentages and in perfect balance all the time. And if there's some imbalance that quickly gets adjusted and fixed by moving fluid from one compartment to another. As long as the functions are not affected, the body and the systems will continue functioning. But as soon as the limits are exceeded, then we have symptoms, signs, and serious diseases sometimes. Now, kidneys they have the main function of controlling the blood volume or the body fluid uh, contents. And that counts for the composition of these fluids in terms of water and salt. So in the same way that the water is distributed in the different compartments, the electrolytes and solutes are also uh, found in the same, uh, with the same exchange. Something to consider is that babies, newborns and small infants, they have more water. They reach up to 80% of the total body mass. And that's what is good for them at that point. But then as long as they start growing and increasing in mass tissue, uh, the percentage will change as to the one in adults. How we keep that balance. And this is something that is very important to keep in patients, especially in the hospital when they are hospitalized and receiving fluids through the veins and um, with different types of problems. The intake and the loss of fluids. And we call this balance, fluid balance. And this is something that um, we have to control every single day, every 24 hours. And there are some numbers here that are averages and help us to uh, see how this balance is kept. For instance, with fluid intake, ingestible liquids, that represents about two liters, about two liters of, of water every day. Consider the water and drinks of all types and food it will be uh two liters and 300 milliliters on the milliliters in a day 24 hours but then we have to consider as fluid intake what we call metabolic water which is the water that is a result of cellular respiration you remember the equation of uh, cellular respiration oxidation of glucose glucose Uh, To produce ATP, at the end we have oxygen, carbon dioxide, I mean carbon dioxide and water. Well, that amount of water is important. It's about 200 milliliters per day. We produce, we make water out of these chemical reactions. And it's considered as fluid intake. But then the fluid loss through the kidneys, and this is urine, 1,500 milliliters a day. Evaporation from the skin, 600 milliliters per day. Exhalation from the lungs, 300 milliliters per day. Loss in the feces, 100 milliliters per day. Sometimes mistakes can be made if we don't count these two evaporation and exhalation from the lungs. And this may change. In the summer, it's not the same as in the winter time. If the temperature of the room is not well controlled, that would would change. So this is important to control during the time a patient is hospitalized every day, 24 hours, especially for important diseases like someone has with cerebral edema, someone in coma is not able to eat or drink, and they receive all the fluids through the vein. We have to count all this. And it is essential and very important, that's one of the reasons why uh, sometimes some patients are very well controlled and they say, do not eat or drink anything that comes from your relatives. You only eat and drink things from here in the hospital, things that we give you, give it to you, no, not any other thing. We have to count that and the nurses come every day and say, okay, how many glasses of water did you t- take today and they give you Determine amount of water to drink during the day. All that is controlled and measured to keep the body in in balance in terms of fluids. And fluid loss is also considered extra, additional amount if the patient goes to surgery. If the surgery takes like three hours or four hours, and it's an abdominal surgery, the organs are exposed, and there's more evaporation of water. So they need more water. And if they are receiving fluids through the vein, they need more fluids and before the surgery and after the surgery, we have to count all this very well. And this is a graph that shows all the same amount of that we discussed, how the water gain must equal the water loss every single day in order to keep this, uh, especially the kidneys. The kidneys are the first organs that start suffering if we don't keep a good control of the Uh, fluid balance. How we keep this balance? There are different ways or feedback mechanisms that we use to control this uh, balance. One of them is shown here. If we start with this condition dehydration, then we'll have as a consequence the blood osmolarity will increase. Blood volume will decrease, and the flow of saliva will decrease, and that will be the symptom or sign, dry mouth, dry pharynx. Increase osmolarity of the blood will stimulate osmoreceptors and the hypothalamus, and that stimulates the thirst center in the hypothalamus, and you are thirsty. If you are able to drink water, then you go ahead and drink water and help to balance this. And the decreased blood volume leads to decreased blood pressure. And that activates the renin-angiotensin system in the kidneys. That will increase. The angiotensin II will contribute also to balance or restore the balance, increasing the body water. Hormones that regulate this, and this is a review, we mentioned this when we did kidney function and also when we did uh, cardiovascular a little bit. Angiotensin II, aldosterone, they are responsible for sodium reabsorption and water by osmosis whenever there is dehydration. And dehydration, aldosterone is produced and the aldosterone will take care of this to keep water. And the AMP, that stands for atrial natriuretic peptide, is going to promote screech, excretion of this sodium and chloride. So these two, angiotensin 2, aldosterone, and AMP, will work balancing each other in uh, the fluid balance. Aldosterone, atrial <laughs> natriuretic peptide, and angiotensin 2. How this works... Is shown in this diagram, the initial stimulus may be increased intake of sodium chloride. That will lead to increased plasma concentration of these electrolytes. If there's increased plasma concentration, that will increase osmosis of water from the intracellular fluid to the interstitial cell fluid, and that increases the blood volume. That's a reason why when we exceed in our intake of sodium, then our blood pressure will be increased because the blood volume will be increased. That will make these two effects. Increased stretching of the atria of the heart and release of atrial natriuretic pipe peptide. A decreased release of renin and decreased formation of angiotensin II and aldosterone. So everything will go to the opposite effect, which will be increase the loss of sodium and chloride, lose water by osmosis, and therefore decrease the blood volume, which was increased right here. So the atrial natural peptide and aldosterone, they will work in different situations trying to balance the water contents. And besides, the ADH, which is a hormone from the posterior pituitary gland hypothalamus, will control the water loss, regulate the water loss at the collecting ducts of the kidneys. ADH increases permeability of these collecting ducts. Water channels known as aquaporin are inserted, more produced and inserted in the membrane of the collecting ducts, promoting a concentrated urine. So they're going to reabsorb more water, keep water, and the urine will be more concentrated. Water intoxication may be a problem, like if someone has excessive blood loss, sweating, vomiting, or diarrhea, and At the same time, drinks plain water. Plain water is just water without any electrolytes. Well, what's gonna happen is, if they are losing blood or sweating, vomiting, they are losing fluids, but they are losing also electrolytes. And the sodium will be decreased in the interstitial fluid and the plasma. That is called hyponatremia, which stands for low levels of sodium and it will decrease the osmolality of the interstitial fluid and the plasma. That will promote osmosis of water from the interstitial fluid into the intracellular fluid, just osmosis, because there's different concentration of solutes in both sides. And that has a consequence that the cells will swell. And the cells may swell and damage, then we get damage. Especially in the central nervous system, where they meet convulsions, seizures, coma, and possible death. Electrolytes are very important. They have to be in the fluids. Fluid is not just water. The body fluids, they're just not water. They contain sodium, potassium, calcium and they help to regulate the amount of uh, of water in that fluid. The electrolytes or ions, they control osmosis. They change in concentration in both sides of the membrane, intracellular, extracellular, and they will move water. Another function, especially the potassium, will help to keep the acid-base balance, which is the concentration of hydrogen ions, how acid the blood is. They are able to carry electrical current, like what happens in the nervous system, action potentials, and some of them serve as cofactors for important chemical reactions. The electrolytes are measured in milliequivalents. Usually, when we want to express the amount or concentration of the electrolytes in a solution, we use this unit, milliequivalents, which measure the amount of electrical charges. Since they are electrolytes, as sodium and potassium and calcium uh, in solution, they have electrical charges, negative or positive, and we determine the number of or concentration of anions and cations in a determined amount of solution. One equivalent is the charge, the electrical charge that we find in one mole of hydrogen ions. That is the reference value for this. And a milliequivalent is just a thousandth part of, uh, of an equivalent. The concentration of sodium and potassium, for instance, we have them here. For sodium, is from 136 to 146. We usually use the number 140 as an average. 140 milliequivalents per liter. And for potassium, from 3.5 to 5.0 milliequivalents per liter. That's what we have usually as normal values in the blood, extracellular fluid. And how they promote osmosis, it depends on how many of them are in each fluid or compartment, but the number of milliequivalents. Like if we say one millimole of sodium chloride, is the same as saying two milliequivalents. Because one milliequivalent comes from the sodium with a positive charge and one milliequivalent of the chloride with a negative charge they get dissociated when they are in solution. And this uh, bar graph is showing the amount of these electrolytes in different body compartments. We have some numbers there. Sodium and yellow is for the intracellular fluid and red for the plasma and blue for the interstitial fluid. With for sodium, for instance, you see that there is 140 average milliequivalents in the extracellular fluid. But there's only 10 milliequivalents in the intracellular fluid. That creates the concentration gradient that we've been talking about in the 40B for nervous system. But in the intracellular, I mean, for potassium, for potassium, there is more potassium in the intracellular fluid, up to 140 and only four in the extracellular fluid. And In the same way, we have the the, the values of different electrolytes inside the cell and outside the cell. But the two more important are sodium and potassium always, because they are going to determine osmosis, movement of ions, and uh, electrical charges, like in the nervous system. If you see the bags, or bottles that contain the fluids that we give to patients, you will read that values, though those values that we've been talking about, like milliequivalents, if you notice at this area right here, then you can see the values. 154 milliequivalents and 77 milliequivalents. <coughs> the concentration of sodium chloride is 0.9%, which means... Nine parts in a thousand parts of water. That's the concentration. So there are different. These are the two different concentrations of sodium chloride that can be used. This is the one that we use mostly because this is the concentration and osmolarity equal to the blood osmolarity. So if we give this fluid straight to the vein, it won't cause any trouble in the red blood cells or in any other cell or, or compartment. Will just get into the blood and then they will move to the extracellular interstitial fluid and from there to the intracellular fluid, restoring the balance because the amount of sodium that it contains is the same amount that the body fluids have. So it won't cause any problem. That's why we just give this straight to the vein. In case, for instance, that's the first thing that uh, that is done in in an accident scene when we get there and. Uh, We find someone bleeding, or dehydration, or unconscious. We quickly put an IV infusion and start dripping fluids. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing bad is going to happen until the moment that they are taken to the emergency room. Fluids are restored at least partially, and perhaps it's a critical moment. And again, we see here the distribution of. Sodium, potassium, and other electrolytes in the intracellular and extracellular fluid. And this way is shown differently. Extracellular fluid is all this part. And sodium, we have 153. Potassium is just 4.3. And those are uh, talking about the cations that have positive charge sodium and potassium. And the intracellular fluid. Difference, sodium, there's only 10, but potassium, up to 159. These are not average numbers. It should be 140, 146, or 153, 150. Uh, we can understand the differences. So, sodium accounts for almost half of the osmolality of the extracellular fluid. It's very important because the... Osmolarity of the body fluids is 300 milliosmoles, And what we have seen for sodium is 142, 140, 145. It's about one half of the osmolality. So any change in the sodium will be a very important effect in the osmolality. Remember, it's very important, necessary for the action potentials in the nervous system. And a fact... Typical diet usually exceeds the daily requirements of sodium. So there are many places where you can find this information. That regular diet that we consume every day, typical diet contains lots of sodium, which is not bad to a certain point if your kidneys are healthy and your lifestyle is very healthy. Your kidneys are able to control this, but at some point it will not be good because it can promote. Um, uh, important diseases cardiovascular diseases special chloride in the same way as the sodium is the most prevalent anion because it comes together with the sodium sodium chloride in same amounts the anions like the chloride they help to balance the level of anions in different fluid compartments especially to balance with bicarbonate which is an anion negative charge Chloride and bicarbonate, they help each other to get balance in different places. Potassium is the most prevalent in the intracellular fluid. And it is very important to establish the resting membrane potential. Remember the repolarization phase of the action potential when the potassium channel open and potassium gets out of the cell and restoring the resting membrane potential. and also help to maintain the intracellular fluid volume. The reason why potassium is used in uh, some solutions, especially these solutions that is called the lethal solution of potassium chloride is because the potassium will Alter the resting member potential it will make the cells unresponsive to changes in the depolarization and repolarization and the most Important cells that use potassium are or nervous cells and muscle cells Muscular cells skeletal muscle and cardiac muscle And bicarbonate which is the second most prevalent uh, prevalent Anion after the chloride. This one is important in the transport and the transport of carbon dioxide. That's the way that the carbon dioxide gets excreted or in exhaled in the lung. Kidneys will take care of the levels of bicarbonate in the blood, and this has to do with the pH. But depending on how the pH goes, the bicarbonate will go if created or kept. Calcium is the most abundant mineral in the bones and important in blood clotting. Neurotransmitter release. Calcium is necessary so the neurotransmitters will be released and any synapses of the body. And it's regulated by the PTH, parathyroid hormone. Phosphates, they go along with the calcium because salts of calcium phosphate are essentially found in the bone and the teeth. But the phosphates are working as buffers the ones that neutralize hydrogens in the blood and urine, but most in the urine. The phosphates are essential buffers in the urine. So when the urine is excreted to acidic, then the phosphates come and control that acidic uh, uh, content. Magnesium is one of the cofactors in the metabolism, especially metabolism of vitamins, blood clot, blood uh, clotting factors. Magnesium is an important cofactor. And it's also uh, found as part of the bone. Starling forces, I think we did this in cardiovascular. It's just a review here related with how the body fluids move from compartment to compartment. And this is a way that these fluids will move. With the nutrients. There are two forces, all of them called starting forces. Some forces that favor filtration, which are the capillary hydrostatic pressure, in other words, blood pressure, and the interstitial oncotic pressure, which is exerted by proteins found in the fluid. Forces that favor reabsorption are the plasma oncotic pressure. Proteins, plasma proteins, albumin especially, that keep the water or pull the water back to the blood. And the interstitial hydrostatic pressure, which is minimal, around the cells, the interstitial fluid does not have much pressure. So this balance of forces that we see here with numbers in the arterial end and in the venous end at the arterial end, if we plug in all the numbers, we'll end up with a value of plus 10. And at the venous side, a value of minus nine. 10 minus nine equals one. And that one is taken care of by lymphatic system. That's how the body fluids are controlled, moving out and moving in back to the blood. Now this changes sometimes, if there are changes in the osmolality. But everything trying to keep and restore the balance of contents of the fluids in all these compartments. Edema happens when there's an excessive amount of interstitial fluid and cause swelling. It's fluid in the interstitial space. It's interstitial fluid excess. And that may happen, if we analyze the starting forces, may happen by increased blood pressure. People with high blood pressure tend to have edema around the ankles, usually, in the lower limbs. Increase in the capillary permeability. Proteins will get out of the blood vessels to the interstitial space and will pull water with it. Decrease in concentration of plasma proteins. Not enough proteins in the blood. They will not pull enough water, more water will, be, will, will stay in the interstitial space. Or obstruction of lymphatic vessels. That, mine, that one, value one, that is returned to the lymph cannot happen if there is an obstruction in the lymphatic system. And regarding acid base balance, acid base balance is a very important thing. It's defined as the concentration of hydrogens and bicarbonate in the blood. And this is important because it's going to provide environment for different chemical reactions like we did in digestive system, the, we studied the activity of one of the enzymes, the amylase, and we saw how it changes its effect at pH two or pH six or seven. And every enzyme has an optimal pH. So that's the reason why this pH is so important, because mostly what the body needs is to contain the pH, especially the blood and fluids. pH should be between 7.35 and 7.45. That is the normal pH of the blood in the arteries, arterial blood. And how we keep that? by the action of buffers, chemical buffers that we have in the blood. Second, by the action of the lungs, function of the lungs. And third, the function of the kidneys. All these three factors will help to maintain and keep the pH in those levels, 7.35, 7.45. If there's less than 7.35, we're in trouble. If there's higher than 7.45, we're also in trouble. Why? Because they are going to change many processes in the body. What are the buffer systems? The buffers in chemistry, we study them as substances that will neutralize or control the changes in the pH of a solution. And that's what the buffers do in our body also. The buffer systems that we have are protein buffers bicarbonate, carbonic acid buffer system, and phosphate buffer system. Most important is the carbonic acid bicarbonate buffer system. Then, followed by the phosphate, and in third place, followed by the protein buffer system, which is proteins that are inside the cells that will capture hydrogens and help to balance this uh, pH. And how the lungs will control the pH. How the lungs participate in controlling the acid-base balance. By breathing. How come? Well, this is the most important chemical reaction that explains changes in the pH. What we measure is this. The concentration of hydrogen ions. we increase the concentration of hydrogen ions the pH goes down in value If we decrease the concentration of hydrogen ions the pH goes up in values so how we change this number of hydrogens we can change it by changing the amount of carbon dioxide that we eliminate from the lungs since these chemical reactions are linked and there are two directions, there are bidirectional chemical reactions shown by these arrows, meaning that whatever change that happens in one side of the chemical reaction will lead to changes in the other side. Following that logics, if I, let's say, if I stop breathing for some reason, I stop breathing, no breathing, carbon dioxide is supposed to be eliminated. So this carbon dioxide starts to accumulate in the blood. So there will be more carbon dioxide in the blood. It's not being exhaled. That will lead to a change in all these chemical reactions. If I increase the carbon dioxide amount, that will increase the amount of carbonic acid. Therefore, that will increase the amount of hydrogens and the amount of bicarbonate. And if the number of hydrogen ions is increased, that means lower pH. So the pH goes down. Usually less than 7.35. We call that acidosis. And that happens, for instance, when someone has pneumonia. Infection of the lung, like one lobe of the lung is compromised. It's not working. Carbon dioxide is not eliminated efficiently. That leads to increase of the hydrogen ions, decrease of the pH in the blood called acidosis. That's how the lung function may affect the pH of the blood. And it works in the other way around, in the same way. And how the kidneys work controlling the pH? Same idea. We have the main chemical reaction here. Let's say, for some reason, for some reason, the hydrogens are increased. And what that, that, that one reason may be intoxication with some medication, let's say, or poisoning. Uh, someone started trying to kill themselves and took like a, 100 pills or something. If that something is acidic, is an acid, well, the hydrogen amounts in the blood will increase. And the hydrogen amounts will increase well the kidneys will try to eliminate some of these hydrogens in the urine. Or, in the other in the other case, the kidneys will try to keep the carbonates in the blood, not to eliminate them. So they can combine with hydrogens and neutralize that, trying to control the pH. So the kidneys work in this side of the chemical reaction. So in that way, we have this scale of priorities. If something happens in the pH of our blood, chemical buffers first, carbonate, protein buffer, phosphate. If that fails, or is not able to control the problem, then the lungs will start working. And then if the lungs cannot fix it completely, the kidneys will finally fix the problem in that order. So these are the problems, acidosis and alkalosis. We call acidosis when the pH goes lower than 7.35. And alkalosis when the pH goes over 7.45. There are two types of acidosis. One of them is called respiratory acidosis and the other type is metabolic acidosis. And it's known as respiratory acidosis because the origin is in the lungs, some lung problem that is causing acidosis. Metabolic, some other reason. Maybe diabetes, maybe intoxication, the example I gave. Alkalosis, if it's caused by a lung problem, respiratory problem, is called uh, respiratory alkalosis or metabolic alkalosis. Some examples here. Respiratory acidosis, we gave that example happens when the carbon dioxide accumulates in the blood because of hypoventilation, like in pneumonia, and asthma. People with asthma usually get to the emergency room with acidosis. We mentioned the pH and they are in acidosis. Because of hypoventilation, they are not breathing properly. And what happens here is carbon dioxide increases in the blood, the concentration, and that leads to concentration of increased concentration of hydrogens. And that is measured as lower pH. Respiratory alkalosis is the other way around. If you increase the rate and depth of respirations, that's called hyperventilation. What you are doing is Decreasing the amount of carbon dioxide in your blood. So you're clearing carbon dioxide too quickly. That will lead to decreased concentration of hydrogens. Which is called increased pH. Or is measured as increased pH. Alkalosis. If the origin is in the lung we have respiratory alkalosis. Any problem that causes hyperventilation will lead to respiratory alkalosis. Metabolic acidosis is called when acids accumulate, which are non-respiratory, so from other origin, like diabetes. Diabetes, sometimes uh, diabetic people, they have excessive amount of ketone bodies in the circulation. And those ketone bodies are acids that will promote metabolic acidosis. Or intoxication with medications like aspirin, for instance, which is an acid. And that will increase the amount of hydrogens. Straight here in the blood. The lung is not participating here. And if that happens, then we have a low pH and that's called metabolic acidosis. The origin is straight. Some acid has been added to the blood. And metabolic alkalosis. Same, but the other way around. When uh, hydrogens are decreased in the blood for some reason. And what that one reason sometimes is excessive vomiting. How come? Well, the, when we vomit what we eliminate is gastric juice. And what's in the gastric juice? Hydrochloric acid. Lots of hydrogens. And we are losing hydrogens. And that leads to metabolic alkalosis. The lungs are not the origin. The change is happening straight in the circulation. Now, when these things happen, what it comes after is compensation. That means If the lungs are the origin, then the kidneys will try to balance the problems and fix the problem. If the lungs are causing acidosis, increase concentration of hydrogens, the kidneys will eliminate those, those hydrogens. And if it's a diabetic problem, increase amount of hydrogens, the lungs will try to compensate, trying to eliminate carbon dioxide, increasing the respiration rate and the depth of respiration. Acidosis, acidosis are the most common. Usually respiratory acidosis, and usually more serious than the alkalosis. But either one can be controlled and adjusted if the systems are healthy. If there's some additional problem causing it, like pneumonia, asthma, then the problem may get very serious. Okay, any question? Any comment? Okay, remember the exam at 6 for Tuesday and Thursday, 4.30 for Wednesday, no lecture on Thursday, and we have the final next Tuesday.